Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. Venezuela's Nicolas Maduro is waging a murky military campaign against armed groups along the country's border with Colombia. What's behind it? And is there a threat to regional stability? When we see uh, not just ground combat, but actual bombardments from the air, quite heavy deployment of, of troops on the ground in a very volatile border area, you obviously have to worry that this could spread. To Venezuela's seemingly endless list of problems, you can now add a big outbreak of military fighting near its border with Colombia. On March 21st, the Venezuelan armed forces began what the New York Times has called Venezuela's largest use of firepower in decades. It began as an airstrike against a faction of so-called FARC dissidents, that's people who formerly belonged to Colombia's rebel group but aren't part of the peace process. And then it turned into ground fighting. Venezuelan officials cite nine dead. An estimated 5,000 civilians have fled, many of them into Colombia. Displaced Venezuelans have cited abuses by the Venezuelan military. And a group of over 60 Colombian and Venezuelan NGOs have urged the UN Secretary General to designate a special envoy to resolve the crisis. If you're like me, you've wondered, what the hell is going on? Why is the Venezuelan government cracking down on these armed groups now, when in the past Nicolas Maduro seemed to turn a blind eye? Is this related at all to politics in Caracas? Is Maduro feeling more confident, given the recent changes in the National Assembly and signs that Venezuela's economy may be bottoming out after seven years of recession and humanitarian crisis? And as is always the question with Venezuela, what does all this mean for regional stability as a whole? To help us try to answer some of these questions, I'm joined today on the AQ podcast by Phil Gunson. Phil is a senior analyst at the International Crisis Group based in Caracas. He has spent almost 40 years reporting on Latin America and is an expert on the Venezuelan political situation. Phil, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation. So, Phil, let's start with the context in which, you know, these violent clashes have taken place. Is it fair to say that Nicolas Maduro is in a stronger position now than he was six months ago? Definitely. I think if you look at the political situation, uh, Maduro has, for one thing, I think very importantly, carried out this rather dubious legislative election at the end of last year, which drew a line on the put an end to the two years in which Juan Guaido posed a major challenge on the domestic front that's the leader of the opposition, the leader of the outgoing National Assembly. Because, of course, he was recognized and still is recognized by the United States as the legitimate president of Venezuela. Then in early December, the National Assembly, which Guaido headed, was up for re-election. The mainstream opposition decided not to take part in that election. As a result, not just of that decision, but also of the fact that the election was profoundly rigged, Maduro has now regained control of the country's legislature. And although, you know, from the point of view of, of the mainstream opposition, that was not a legitimate election and Guaido remains the, the country's leader, in practical terms, that has meant a significant political victory for Maduro. And I think in that respect, he can be uh, satisfied that he has seen off the immediate challenge at least posed by Guaido and, and by the Trump administration, which, of course, by coincidence, left office at the same time. 
And I want to get into the new administration in Washington in just a second, but let's also, I mean, let's recognize that not all is rosy for Maduro either. I mean, beyond the the humanitarian crisis that we've, you know, that we've talked about and certainly covered extensively in America's Quarterly and elsewhere, there's also this pandemic. I mean, is is there anything new to say in terms of the handling there? I, I, I know the vaccine rollout in particular has been very poor. Well, that's right. Extremely poor by any standards. Of course, even before the pandemic started, Venezuela was in the throes of what the experts call a complex humanitarian emergency. And what that means in lay people's terms is that not only do we have widespread hunger, we have epidemics, we have a collapsing health service, but at the same time, we have a government in office that is doing its best to present obstacles to the resolution of all those crises. So it's not just a humanitarian problem, it's a political problem as well. And then, of course, into the middle of this comes the pandemic. The transmission of the disease in the early stages, at least, was very slow by world standards. And it seemed, in a sense, that we were getting away with it. That illusion has been uh, soundly um, revised, I think, in, in, in recent weeks, because we've now seen a very severe second wave of the pandemic. And of course, the period that the government could have used to build up its health service to strengthen the the medical response to the emergency it didn't really use that at all what it what it's done is to conceal the statistics it's done very little in the way of reviewing and and strengthening health service which is in extremely poor shape and instead it's blamed american sanctions it's blamed the opposition blamed the public on some occasions for not uh, taking enough precautions the outcome is that now We have a a pandemic that is out of control in Venezuela, and we have a health service which has reached virtual capacity in terms of intensive care. And unfortunately, the vaccines have not arrived. We've had a few hundred thousand doses arrive from Russia and from China, but so far there's no vaccination plan. And although there is an agreement at the technical level between government and opposition to, on the one hand, release the resources that are outside of Venezuela that the opposition controls, and on the other to, on the part of Maduro, controls the territory to allow access for the vaccination to take place. That's being interfered with at the political level, unfortunately, and it's looking very difficult at the moment for this to be rolled out in the way that it should be. Phil, it's been surprising to me that given how much the Venezuelan government has leaned on China and Russia for support over the last couple of years, that they haven't been receiving the Chinese and Russian vaccines in greater numbers. Is there a reason for that? It is strange. In December, Maduro promised that we would see in the first quarter of this year, 10 million doses of the first Russian vaccine, the Sputnik vaccine. And in fact, we've seen, I think, less than 200,000 so far. There are, I think, several reasons. I think one of the clear reasons why we've not seen delivery of more vaccines, either of of the Russian vaccine or of the Chinese vaccine, is that the infrastructure of Venezuela is so poor, and particularly in terms of refrigeration, for example, which is obviously crucial when you're dealing with a, a large volume of vaccines. That's so poor and the administrative capacity of the government is so inadequate that I think neither for Moscow nor for Beijing is it appealing to send vaccines here and perhaps have them 
wasted, used in the wrong way, and perhaps for Russia, China to take some of the the, the heat for that. In in the sense, if they're practicing vaccine diplomacy, as everybody seems to be doing these days, then what they're looking for is success stories and and not the kind of failure that they would be setting themselves up for if they sent large volumes of the vaccine into Venezuela under present circumstances. That's interesting. So let's talk about more international context and specifically Washington. You referenced that now with the change administration, I mean, Trump was very tough uh, in terms of language, at least on Venezuela, whether that was all effective or not, I think is a, a separate uh, a separate conversation. But, you know, certainly the tone has changed and the expectations have changed now with with Joe Biden in office. Will policy change? I mean, what have you seen so far from the Biden administration? Are there any signs that may indicate a shift in policy towards Venezuela beyond, you know, kind of the tone and rhetoric? Certainly there's been a change of tone and there's a great emphasis on the need for multilateral action, uh, the need in particular to bring the Europeans on board because Clearly, there's been a, a big discrepancy between the way Washington has approached this or Washington did approach it under, under Trump and the kind of policies that the European Union has been implementing, in particular on sanctions, but also in terms of what the Trump administration called the maximum pressure policy, all options are on the table, this kind of thing, the, the strong hint, in some, some cases, not even a hint, sometimes made absolutely explicit that military action might be contemplated if, if Maduro didn't agree to to stand down. It's positive what we've seen in terms of the change of, of rhetoric, the change of intentionality, if I can put it that way. But unfortunately, there's not been much in practical terms. I think there's a good deal of inertia from the Trump years. And in part, of course, that's to do with the slow pace of appointments in the, in the, in the new administration. And so at the moment, I think what we're seeing is is something which is neither one thing nor the other. The Maduro government clearly has the impression that it has seen the back of Trump and it would claim as well seen the back of Guaido, even though he's, he's still there. Phil, in the short term then, what kind of policy do you think would be effective coming out of Washington? Does this mean a lifting of some of the sanctions? Does it mean you know some sort of effort to walk back the recognition of, of Juan Guaido? I mean, what do you see as kind of the most most likely path and the most effective path, assuming that they're two different things? There's a number of different things that, that we've recommended. In, in terms of sanctions, we in Crisis Group have never been very supportive. We weren't very supportive of sectoral sanctions, economic and financial sanctions from the beginning, because they're really a blunderbuss. They do affect the civilian population some of them more than others. It's something that we feel, although we don't, we've not advocated the lifting of sanctions, because of course that would be to reward Maduro for behaving extremely badly. What we have said is that there's a need for a comprehensive review of sanctions to ensure that the damage to the civilian population is minimized. And to be fair, the, the Biden administration has indicated that it's, that it's willing to, to do that. Phil, let's turn to these recent events along the border with Colombia that I mentioned during the introduction. Um, you know, I, I stated some of the basic facts, but can you, can you help us try to make sense of, of why this is happening? Why now? Is it connected to kind of the political and diplomatic dynamics that you've just described? I mean, why is this happening? It's an important question, and, and I don't think we have a complete answer to it yet. You, you pointed out in the introduction that, of course, Venezuela under Maduro and previously under Chavez 
has welcomed, I think it's fair to say, both the ELN and the FARC guerrillas. They're present in significant numbers inside Venezuela. It doesn't mean to say that there are never clashes between the Venezuelan armed forces and elements of the guerrillas. That does happen, but broadly speaking, they're allowed to operate. What is new is that the FARC, of course, signed a peace treaty with the Colombian government some years back, and yet part of the FARC has taken up arms again, and some of those are inside Venezuela. The dissident FARC. That's correct. But but of course, even the dissident FARC are not homogeneous, so that there are some which appear to be closer to the Venezuelan government and some which appear to be further away. So one explanation for what's going on is that those who are under attack at the moment, those that the Maduro government would like to get rid of to expel from Venezuelan territory, are the FARC dissidents they don't like or that are interfering one way or another with either illicit businesses, which of course they're very much involved in, or perhaps actually in terms of territorial control. Because whilst it's true to say that the Venezuelan government has ceded control of its territory, not just to to guerrillas, but also to different forms of armed organisations, both criminal and political, in different parts of the country. There seems to be a concern, a genuine concern, I think, now both among the civilians in government and also in the armed forces, that this may have got out of control. And so it may be that they're trying to bring that back under control to some extent. And the Colombian explanation from their defense minister, Diego Molano, is that these recent clashes have been a dispute over drug trafficking, which coincides with what you just said. Maduro has argued that the attack reflects his government's policy of, quote unquote, zero tolerance toward irregular Colombian armed groups, which is a phrase that I can't even get through without laughing. But, you know, I guess the question is, I mean, we've seen troubles and clashes along the Colombia-Venezuela border before. How bad is this one? I mean, as somebody who's been observing Venezuela and the region for a long time, is this something really to be worried about? Is this just another chapter in kind of the long annals of these disputes, these this violence that, that crops up in Venezuela from time to time? Or is there a, you know an elevated risk of regional instability because of what we're seeing here? Yeah, I think the short answer is yes to that, that there is an elevated risk and, and for a number of reasons. One is that to some extent, we're seeing the emergence of a third side. Schematically, we're concerned, of course, it's very complicated, but you could say, well, on the one hand, you have the Colombian government, you have Maduro on the other side. They don't even talk to each other. They don't have relations. The Colombian guerrillas are heavily present inside of Venezuela and seem to have a quite cozy relationship with the Maduro government. So to that extent, it's it's relatively straightforward. There, is, you know, there are two sides to this. But when a third side emerges and, and when we see... Uh, not just ground combat, but as you mentioned earlier, actual bombardments from the air, quite heavy deployment of, of troops on the ground in a very volatile border area. And of course, all borders, you know, when you when you see fighting close to borders, and especially when you've got two governments that are so hostile to each other, you obviously have to worry that this, that this could spread. But when I talk about the third side, what I mean is that there is an actor, an armed actor in there, which is not loyal either to whatever the Venezuelan government might say, is not loyal either to the Venezuelans or to the Colombians, and might at some point be interested in seeing them fight each other. So it it complicates things, it makes them more dangerous. And I think it's interesting that the Venezuelan government in recent days has asked the United Nations to take a look at this, um, not not only because it says there are landmines there, which would would like the UN's help in in removing, 
but also because there's a need for some kind of channels of communication between the Colombian side and the Venezuelan side. We've seen so many people flow out of Venezuela, refugees, since Maduro came to power in 2013. I mean, the, the approximate count of that is, is 5.4 million Venezuelans have left the country, according to the United Nations. Is it possible that we see a pickup in displacements as well as a result of this? Well, at the local level, there's been a significant displacement of the civilian population from just inside the Venezuelan border across into the town of Arauquita, which is on the Colombian side. Now, that may be temporary displacement. We hope it is. We hope that things calm down and those people are able to return to their homes. So in a sense, it's a separate phenomenon from the exodus you mentioned of more than 5 million people in, in recent years. That said, of course, the situation, the broader situation in Venezuela across the whole country in terms of poverty, hunger, disease, lack of opportunities, lack of employment, and so on, uh, is so severe and seems unlikely to resolve anytime soon that I think it's inevitable that we will see, you know, with ebbs and flows, but, but certainly over time, a net outflow of people from Venezuela continuing. And that's placing, temporarily at least, a very heavy burden on Colombia in particular and, and on the wider region. Yeah, no, there's no question. We've published a lot in America's Quarterly about some of the political effects in places like not just Colombia, but of course, Peru, where there's more than a million Venezuelans, um, Argentina, Chile, and and so on. The, the response has been overwhelmingly generous over the last couple of years, but the, the strains are, are certainly there. You mentioned, Phil, uh, the situation with poverty in the economy, and I think all our listeners know the scale of what's happened on that front over the last couple of years. The economy has, has shrunk more than 80% since Maduro came to power. But there are some forecasters out there who see signs of a rebound, a very, very modest rebound, but a rebound nonetheless. Uh, Credit Suisse, for example, forecasts that GDP will expand in Venezuela 4% this year. And that would be the first GDP growth in the country since 2013. What do you make of this? Do you see any of these signs of being glib? That's an incredibly small rebound after a historic drop. But I suppose if they could find some kind of floor, that matters for people who live there. What, What are you seeing? Yes, I think there's a number of points to make. As you say, it's very modest. I mean, if if Venezuela were to continue to grow 4% a year, it would probably take about a century to get back to where they were before Maduro came to power. And the other thing to say about it is that it's a very uneven form of growth because the the levels of inequality in the country are so severe now. You have, you know, well in excess of 90% of the population living in poverty. Most of those people really can't even put enough food on the table every day. There's a small kind of bubble economy where, um, you know, some people, of course, are extremely well off. And anybody with significant access to dollar income can live, you know, reasonably well in in Caracas, at least, if, uh, you know, if you have your, you know, a well in your back garden and your own generator, uh, you know, because, of course, the infrastructure has collapsed. But the the idea that there can be a a genuine recovery, I think, is, is really fantasy at the moment, not least because there's no way that Venezuela can attract significant amounts of foreign investment. And it needs, let's face it, tens of billions. I mean, what are we talking? 60 billion, 70 billion, 80 billion to really start uh, getting things back in shape. 
but they're trying, right? I mean, Maduro does seem to have been making these overtures lately towards bringing more foreign capital back in. And everybody has reacted more or less the same way, saying this is deeply cynical. And of course, he's doing this because he needs foreign exchange. And we know how this history will end the second he doesn't need the money anymore. But I mean, is there any sign that anybody is kind of biting at that possibility? Yeah, well, I think in particular in the, in the energy sector, you know, there's there's a lot of interest. Obviously, you know, Venezuela has huge reserves, not just of, of oil, but of natural gas. And whilst it's true that an awful lot of money would be required to get production going again and, and to, and, you know, to rebuild even the, the pipelines, the roads, you know, the electricity system and so on, there's obvious interest there. And energy companies are used to working in difficult environments. So there's certainly interest. But of course, Venezuela is under sanctions. It has something of the order of, well, that depends how you calculate it, I suppose, but maybe $180 billion in debt, which can't be rescheduled, renegotiated until the US lifts financial sanctions. The legal framework is obviously another big problem because there's no real rule of law here. And the, the kind of thing that Maduro is trying to do to get money to come in seems more likely to, to, to attract illicit capital, if you like, than, than licit capital, because it's it's shrouded in great mystery in terms of, you know, where, where you know, the agreements uh, will be secret, the money will be stashed away, where even the Maduro-controlled National Assembly can't control it. I've wondered over the last couple of months, as we see oil prices rising globally, if this would, you know, at least at some level, provide some support for for Venezuela and for Maduro specifically, I suppose the infrastructure problems and other and the sanctions and the other logistical barriers that you just described are what's standing in the way of that. Like it, we shouldn't assume that just because oil is back around seventy dollars again that that's that's going to lead to you know a revival of sorts for for Maduro. No, well it might it might do for Maduro, but not for Venezuela in the sense that I mean, obviously, if all he's interested in is maintaining the loyalty of the core group. I mean, I'm not just talking about maybe the few dozen or the few hundred people immediately uh, around the government, but but the broader support structure and also, of course, the military. Then perhaps he doesn't need that much money. And, and certainly, you know, oil or exports have modestly improved and the, and the price is up, so there's more money available. But for the broader economy, there's no light on the horizon at all. Yeah, I mean, as you noted, uh, there have been reports of food shortages and basic supplies, diesel shortages and, and so on. I mean, you're there on the ground living amongst one of the great humanitarian crises in the history of the Western Hemisphere. Uh, what's it been like, if you can tell us a little bit? What do you see on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I mean, things have changed from, say, a couple of years back when the big issue for most people, was scarcity. There just simply weren't goods in the shops. Uh, even if you had the money to buy them, that things were not available because price uh, and exchange controls, government restrictions of all kinds made it almost impossible to produce. And the public sector had collapsed effectively, and it remains collapsed to this day. Then, of course, they permitted this dollarization and relaxed price controls, which meant that goods flowed back into the shops, imported goods even, and they there's uh, all these rather fancy stores in Caracas now where you can get you know, goods from the United States at a, at a considerable markup. But I suppose the thing that is 
is most distressing is is on the health front. You know, every day on social media, see appeals for people who maybe uh, their relatives are suffering from COVID or some other, you know, they have some other kind of medical emergency. The health service simply doesn't respond. Even if you go to a public hospital and you manage to get a bed, you have to buy all the medicines, buy the blood, pay for the equipment. So, you know, anybody who has a, a little bit of spare money finds that, you know, they're having to support people who don't, friends, relatives, week in, week out, because people simply don't have the wherewithal, uh, often, as I say, even to feed themselves, but much less to attend to a medical emergency. The situation you described was was largely true even before the pandemic. And you look at some of the math now, I mean, according to Johns Hopkins, only about 98,000 vaccine doses have been administered in Venezuela. So far, it's only about 0.2% of the country's population. The death numbers are not as high as some of us had feared. Uh, in fact, the, the official number of deaths is at about 1,600. But yeah, I always question, I think the international community always questions the official numbers that come out of Venezuela. I mean, I suppose there's very likely a, a hidden toll there that we're not even, that we're just barely seeing the surface of. Yeah, definitely. This is a government that systematically conceals information from the public, everything from GDP to homicide statistics. They also make a practice of carrying out far fewer tests than they should. I think the number of tests, they don't publish statistics on this either, but as I understand it, there's something like two and a half thousand to three thousand tests, PCR tests being done a day. Santiago de Chile is doing 30,000 a day. The figures that we're seeing as a result of those tests, of course, are way, way below what's really going on. And what epidemiologists tell us uh, in private is that the, the figures, both for cases that are uh, you know, the daily cases, daily new cases, and of deaths are being underestimated to the extent of five or six times. And of course, nobody really knows. Well, Phil, in the absence of good data, it's it's really important to talk to good people there on the ground uh, who have the experience and insight to be able to, you know, kind of tell us what's going on. So we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today for the AQ Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. You can read more at americasquarterly.org. Finally, if you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly Podcast is produced by Brendan O'Boyle and Leonie Rawls. America's Quarterly is an independent, not-for-profit publication of America's Society and the Council of the Americas.